the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great, grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. number 79 of the triple threat podcast if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner from the two-man power trip of wrestling the one and only jp john paz and on this show we are joined by the man who made the triple threat what it is and he is the one and only franchise shane douglas shane which triple threat am i talking about the podcast or the faction (laughs) (laughs) I would think both, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, both have had an, have had a, uh, an impact, and uh, you know, it's, it's, we were just talking before we came on the air. Uh, you know, it, it amazes me how much the paradigm has shifted in everything. Like I, I was saying a minute ago, uh, you know, ten years ago, fifteen, twenty years ago, uh, everybody read a daily newspaper. Today, the percentage is far less. Uh, when I grew up, I watched TV every night. Uh, my kids hardly ever watch television, you know, so, uh, it's uh, between Hulu and Roku and Hula Hoop and all the rest of these, uh, you know, these online things, YouTube and all the rest of the stuff, that's what they're watching. You know, if they're not, if they're not watching something like that, they're on Instagram or Twitter or, uh, one of the social medias, um, you know, so I would think, and to answer your question from a second ago, uh, much like the triple threat, the original triple threat had an impact on wrestling. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I'll take it a little sidebar for a second. I, I've got to take umbrage with what you said, the, the man that made threat. I had two other guys that were pretty damn good at what they did that I was working with. But I always counted myself like the... Uh, the, the, the guy pulling up the end, you know, with Bam Bam and, and Candido. Uh, but, you know, much in the same way we did in the Triple Threat, now with the podcast, you know, we do the same thing on a weekly basis and, and cover some of the topics and, and do so in a way that, you know, probably pisses some people off, I hope, uh, uh, and gets a lot of other people talking. And, and I think our business desperately needs that right now. 
Oh, absolutely. But there's always a method to my madness. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get to that in a minute. And the reason I mention the triple threat, uh, right out of the gate, but before we get into that, Shane, you know, you're getting back out on the road this weekend. It was a hell of a past couple of weeks, the snow, the cold, then the, the snow yeah. starting to melt. How are you feeling rolling in here to this first month of the year? Another another great, glorious year of professional wrestling for you. And later on in the show, we're going to talk about some of the early days. But how are you feeling these days, Shane? The, uh, the, the snow's starting to melt finally after that uh, deep freeze that we went through last week. Yeah, it's been, it's been damn cold. We had a, you know, we were, I think, at, at minus two or three degrees uh, three or four days ago. Yesterday, we were at almost 50. Uh, tonight we're going back down to 13 or 14 degrees, uh, and the wind's blowing like hell out there. So, you know, all over the place uh, with the weather. Um, but you know, I've I've had an incredible break for the holiday, and uh, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't interested to get back out there. You know, look, when you've been in this business as long as I've been in it, um, you know, anybody will be lying to you to say. I'm looking forward to, to moving on to the next phase and stepping away from it. Um, for me, I'm looking forward to getting back out there. I love performing. I love being in front of the fans. I love talking with the fans. Uh, I, I just love being in the ring. Uh, and I know that that will come to an end sooner than later. Uh, but as, as I get back out to this weekend, and uh, you know, I'm uh, excited about it. I, I look forward. You know, for me, performing is... Uh, you know, like, like breathing. You know, it's just what I've done so long in my life that the, I, you know, the, the break was great. Uh, being home with my boys for the holidays was fantastic. Uh, but we're in the new year now, 2019, and, and this would, uh, you know, starts to mark a uh, another embarkation of another year in this career. And uh, I'm proud to have been involved in it as long as I've been in it. And you know, who knows, this weekend could be the last and it could be another 10 years. I, uh, we'll see, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're going to embark on a little journey here on the show and take a, uh, a little walk down memory lane, but start to explore some of the years that we haven't really talked about on the show. I mean, we've talked about the ECW years a lot. We've covered a lot of the great moments. We've done really deep dives into those moments like the NWA title throwdown and talking about Barely Legal with Bam Bam Bigelow and we're talking about all these amazing events and shows and November to Remember, all these great things, right? We've never talked about some of your earliest days. And we talked about your training with Dominic and we talked about it with Mick Foley and obviously we've, we've hit on things here and there, but we've never gone into some of those early days through the territory. So we start a new series in the second half of today's episode called Shane's Journey Through the Territories. And we're the first we're gonna start that first chapter of you basically pulling out of Dominic's uh, training facility and getting on the open road. But that is to come here in just a couple of minutes. Now, before we get into what's on the, the run sheet, I'm actually gonna throw a little bit of a curveball to you. This is something that we did not go over, but it's something we have talked about on the show. As you know, it's it's getting into the WrestleMania season. They talk about the Hall of Fame. We've talked about it ad nauseum, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the Bam Bam Bigelow induction has started to be kind of thrown out there again. So, with all that being said, if they ask you this year, Shane, Francine said she would say yes, but they would never ask 
We're just going to throw it out there one more time. If they ask you to induct Bam Bam Bigelow for the 2019 WWE Hall of Fame, what would the franchise do in this instance? Look, everybody knows my my feelings for Vince, and everybody knows Vince's feelings for me. Uh, And I'm fine with that. I'm sure he is as well. Um, But look, I've got a world of respect for Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, I, I count myself as being incredibly fortunate and blessed to have had him standing uh, by my side as we as we built Triple Threat uh, in the ECW and, and the market is left on wrestling. Um, you know, I, I've reached a point in my life and my career where I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to marry Vincent Mann and I'm never going to work for him. But uh, to pay homage and respect to Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, you know, I would certainly entertain the idea uh, of doing something like that. Now that said, uh, I'm in complete agreement with Francine. I, I don't think that that offer is going to come. Um, uh, after all, I'm sure like uh, you know, there's probably a million people that they have that works for WWE that would be wink, wink, way more uh, uh, practical uh, to to uh, induct Bam Bam Bigelow, but. Uh, ben, I, I think it's a, a travesty that Bam Bam's not in the Hall of Fame already. Um, if nothing else, for his kids, uh, Shane Colton and Richie, uh, that they should have the right to be able to remember their father that way because Scott was that big of an impact on wrestling. Uh, when wrestling went to its monster levels, Bam Bam, with that push that he had, uh, you know, just his general look and his athleticism, at that size. Um, to me, it beckoned back to like the, the Crusher Blackwells and, you know, the big guys that I had seen when I was growing up before I got into wrestling. Uh, and Bam Bam did that. They took it to another level. You know, we always hear the phrase, you know, the best big man of wrestling. And, and, you know, there are a lot of incredible guys that get put into that category. Uh, but Bam Bam, I think the, by the fact that he had done it in, WWF, he had done it in WCW, he had done it in ECW, he had done it in Japan, uh, you know, just sort of transcended and took it to a different level. Uh, so I, you know, I, I hope Bam Bam gets inducted. Uh, if I don't get asked, which I wouldn't expect again, uh, I will certainly be watching and rooting uh, and, you know, probably the tear in my eye watching it uh, to be. Again, Scott Bigelow certainly deserves that. Uh, and I hope for his kids' sake that that happens this year because it certainly should have a long time ago. So hopefully for their sake and for Scott's memory that uh, that, that does happen. Absolutely. Just wanted to ask you because we're going to start hearing it. As soon as the, uh, the report was out there the other day, I knew it was going to be uh, one of the things that was definitely going to be, uh, <laughs> let's put it this way, whenever you log back onto Twitter, I'm sure you're going to be seeing it uh, in a plentiful amount uh, it, throughout your notifications. So I uh, just want to get that out of the way. But again, fun show we're going to have here, kind of exploring your past. And speaking of the past, JP stepping up to the plate in a big way and circulating a picture uh, on Friday night. So JP, why don't you get your ass in here now? And talk about this picture because not only do I get it in our little group text, I got it separately. And you got to click on it to Zoom and you got to see all the participants. 
But uh, JP pulled one out of the archives. J JP, why don't you talk about uh, some of these uh, these folks that were surrounding Ted Turner in this iconic photo of all the uh, the Turner superstars? Jane, I really, I mean, I love this picture, and obviously, this is when WCW Ted Turner bought the UWF. But all these guys are in. You got the Stinger. You got Luger. You got Ron Simmons. You got the dynamic dudes, and you've got Dickie Murdoch for some godforsaken reason, was able to stand next to Ted Turner. I joke, obviously, about uh, Turner, yeah. but it's just funny that he's in there right next to Ted Turner. Um, how did all those guys end up in that picture? Was that something you guys were just there, or were you hand-selected to be taking that picture with Ted Turner? No, it was, it was completely spontaneous. Uh, that was taken at center stage uh, on Peachtree uh, Street in Atlanta. Um and Ted stopped by, uh, it, it wasn't the only time he stopped by, but he didn't stop by frequently. And he popped in and we were sort of milling about and, uh, talking and, uh, you know, the photographer was there and said, you know, sort of squeezed us all in and took the picture. It was very, very spontaneous. There was no hand selecting or, Hey, you know, you move here or do you move there? Uh, it was, we were sitting there talking on stage, and and uh, the, the uh, photographer just you know sort of asked us to hey pull in tight for a, for a picture, and if if, I, if it's the same picture I'm thinking of, do I, I have a smile on my face looking in Ted's direction? Yes. And the reason I'm that I, I remember vividly the reason I had that look on my face was that was the first time I'd met Ted and was talking with him. And, you know, for some reason in my head, I always thought that Ted Turner would have like a James Earl Jones voice, you know, <laughs> like Darth Vader. Um, and, you know, he was such a down-to-earth, normal guy. You know, nothing like I had expected prior to meeting him. I mean, anytime you saw him on CNN or... You know, any of his other programming, you know, he carried himself in a certain way and, you know, had a very distinguished, you know, vocabulary and the way he carried himself. But the way he was talking, he was almost like a giddy fanboy uh, in center stage. And I don't mean that in any kind of condescending way, uh, but, you know, completely uh, opposite of what I would have expected of Ted Turner. You know, there are many names you can just throw out there that you know everybody instantly recognizes and knows exactly who you're talking about. And Ted Turner is one of those names. And so I remember like standing on stage as they squeezed us in for this picture, and my thought was, is is like like this. And I don't mean that in a negative or condescending way. He just was very normal, very down to earth. Uh, and, you know, I think more excited to be in that picture uh, than we were being in the picture with him. And not that I wasn't excited, but it was, it was, it was really a very surreal moment, uh, you know, because for a lot of us in that picture, uh, other than Dick Murdoch, uh, most excelled anywhere where we would go into business uh, in years to come. And, you know, so, like, I remember distinctly standing on the edge of that, on the like behind Murdoch, and looking down and thinking, like I can't believe Ted Turner is 
is just down to earth, like this kind of a normal guy. Um, but, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it, it was one of those things, you know, where you, you, you know, there's certain things in your head that stick out and you remember vividly. And that was one of them. And, and, and I think in large part because uh, I was at that time so excited to be in a company like WCW on a network like TBS and working for someone like Ted Turner, uh, who had single-handedly transformed the news industry. Uh, and, you know, was we were all hoping at that moment would do the same thing for wrestling for the NWA that he had purchased, do the same thing for that work at same magic that he had worked with, with news. Um, and in many ways, you know, we could get maybe we'll do a show on this one time. I, I think in many ways he did do that. Uh, that, you know, he broadened the, the horizon, expanded the horizons of wrestling with WCW on TBS. Um, and at that moment, you know, my thought, and I'm sure other people in the picture were thinking the same thing, that this is the guy that's going to, you know, push the boundaries of wrestling. Uh, A, which means more employment for all of us. Uh, better programming for the fans, uh, you know, and that was the hope at that moment. Um, I, in, in hindsight, I think, unfortunately, especially once he had sold out to uh, Time Warner, we, we had talked about that at different moments over the episode, uh, over different episodes, I mean, uh, that the people that were brought in didn't share the same vision that Ted Turner. Ted Turner is a wrestling fan. He loves professional wrestling. Uh, that's why he brought it there in the first place. It's why he sold the slot to Vince McMahon originally, way, way back. Um, it's why he brought uh, Crocker Promotions on after that. He's a wrestling fan. He's a mark, like all of us. And uh, unfortunately, after he had sold the Time Warner and his influence waned, uh, there were other people in the in the business, and we, we, today we would call them the elites, the elitists, that thought that they were better than that, that wrestling was redneck and podunk and beneath them. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure if, if, you could, if we could get Ted Turner on the show, which would be, would be a pipe dream, uh, but I'm sure that, that he'd have some really interesting comments to make uh, about what happened with WCW, about what happened with wrestling on Turner Broadcasting, and uh, and the impact, the, the, the lasting stance that he could have made on wrestling that was negated by those moves by Time Warner executives. Just think about that picture and the amount of talent, all the guys that are in there, and then you're talking about uh, Turner and how much he loved wrestling and how much he was into the guys and how down to earth it was. I do think it's pretty cool that Dickie Murdoch is with him, and he's probably because Ted Turner's such a fan. I'm sure he knows Dick Murdoch. I'm sure he knows. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned uh, JYD, John Yard Dog. He is in that picture as well. So it's probably cool that he probably does know a little bit more about those guys and you guys than you, know, than you really think because he's probably is truly a fan of the wrestlers. Yeah, he, he was, you know, he wasn't, it, this wasn't like a five minute photo op where he came in and hey, smiled and shook a few hands and then left. Uh, he stuck around for quite a while and, and stuck around 
through the taping. Uh, that that picture was taken prior to the taping that night, and he may have stayed the whole night. I can't remember exactly when he left, but I remember him milling around in the backstage area and watching the monitor. Uh, to me, it seemed like a very professional thing to do for somebody as powerful as, as Ted Turner. You know, in my way of thinking, he has people that does that stuff for him. Um, but it was very clear to me that, you know, aside from being a fan and a mark of the business, he was sticking around and watching, not just the fan. You could certainly see that part of him. But there was also a part of him that was watching as a businessman. Am I getting my money's worth? Uh, can this product be improved? Uh, what do I think of my talent? Uh, there was very much a business acumen that was at work with Ted Turner that night. And that always stuck with me, you know, because, you know, I think a lot of people today sort of have this, uh, especially now with all this uh, talk about, which, you know, tax certain people more or whatever, um, that, you know, people that, have, that are wealthy or that, you know, made that big chunk of money, that they don't need to worry about stuff anymore, that, you know, just, they're on sort of autopilot. I didn't see that in Ted Turner. The Ted Turner that you see in that picture and what I saw that night at, at, at uh, Center Stage was a very hands-on executive that was very interested in seeing what his money was buying and uh, making sure that he was getting his money's worth. And now, that said, he, like I said a moment ago, he was a fan. You know, he, he, you could tell by watching him the, the, the grin on his face as he was watching the monitor that he very much liked the product. Um, but there was also a part of him that you could see that the wheels were turning, you know, like, uh, and doing all the things I've mentioned. Uh, you know, for me, it was a very cool experience, you know, meeting Ted Turner. Not a lot of people could say they've done that and uh, probably less can say that they've worked for him. And for me, it was just a hell of a learning experience to be standing there. And, you know, you know, part of my grin in that picture and, and standing there is I can't believe I'm standing on this fucking stage with Ted Turner. You know, this is pretty goddamn cool. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I guess I remember it was yesterday. It was really a pretty surreal moment. You think that Turner's sitting there thinking, like, the dynamic dudes. I, I love this gimmick. Man, this is a great gimmick. Yeah. You think he was thinking that at that point? I'm sure he's looking at us and thinking, like, who the hell, am I, who the hell are these two geeks that I'm paying uh, good good money to? Um, no, I, I, I'm joking. I, he was, you know, Ted didn't, when he came in there, he didn't treat Dick Murdoch differently than he treated me and Johnny. Dog differently than he treated you know, say Brian Pillman or somebody else. He came in, he was a very down-to-earth guy. I mean, he was, uh, you know, like I said, he was, I don't want to say giddy because that makes it sound like like, a, like I'm being condescending or, or he seemed like very appreciative to be standing there, you know, to, to be getting ready to watch the show. And, uh, you know, I've been around enough fans in my life. Uh, Ted Turner was a, is a wrestling fan. Uh, we know that from the history on TBS and, and his networks. But in that picture 
that night at center stage. What I saw before the taping, what I saw during the taping, complete representative in that picture. You can see a guy, I think, in that picture with Ted that he's having fun, he's enjoying himself. You know, add to that later, what I saw with him watching the monitor backstage and, you know, talking with, uh, you know, the, the agents and you know, everybody that was running the show, uh, that he was very hands-on. This wasn't just, hey, I'm a fan, and so I'm going to dump a whole lot of money at something, and it doesn't matter because I'm a fan. Uh, he was very much a hands-on businessman, and you could see in that night, aside from, from, from his fandom and his appreciation for the sport, you could see that he was very much a hands-on businessman. So who's the uh, the locker room leader at that point in 89, Shane? I mean, that's, you know, Sting is on the rise. You know, obviously Flair is, uh, he's still the man, but who's like the guy that's kind of, uh, you know, basically uh, the, the, the the grand poobah of the locker room at that point? Well, there were, there were a bunch of them. Um, you know, Bobby Eaton, uh, believe it or not, was two uh, because of his work ethic, uh, but he was also a very approachable guy. Um, you know, Murdoch, Dickie Murdoch was, uh, I don't know if Dickie had a serious bone in his body other than when he was performing. When, as anybody had ever seen. But, you know, just to give you an idea about Dick, uh, we were leaving the hotel one day, checking out to go to the next. So I'm walking down the towards the stairway, I hear laughing, like belly laughing. And as I get closer to the stairway, I, there's a door open, and I can see, hear the, the laughing is coming from that room, so I look in, and it's Dick Murdoch watching the Three Stooges on TV. <laughs> and he's laughing his ass off, rip-roaring time. And then later that night, he was doing the curly shuffle in the ring. And that that was Dick Murdoch. But because of him being Dick Murdoch, you know, he certainly carried a lot of sway in the dressing room. And, you know, he also had Dusty Rhodes, uh, Ric Flair, uh, Ricky Steamboat. Uh, look up to him. You know, for me at that stage, as a younger guy who was just eager to learn the craft, uh, I looked up to all of them. You know, these were... These were all legends and icons. We throw those words around so loosely in the industry today. These guys have all stood the test of time. I, I thought that then, but here we are 30 years later, and all of these names are still very well remembered by wrestling fans, and, and all of them legit legends, most of them Hall of Famers, if not all of them. Uh, so, you know, we were blessed right? when, when, when people have heard me say how blessed I considered myself to be in the business when I was in the business, uh, you know, as a kid coming into the dressing room, a, it was damned intimidating. You know, you're standing in a dressing room of guys that have all achieved guys that have all done it. You know, there's a lot of guys that run their mouth. There's very few guys that have done it. Um, done it, meaning drawn the money, been there in a prolonged, for a prolonged run, uh, 
withstood the test of time. I don't care what industry you're talking about, whether it's music, entertainment, wrestling, uh, whatever genre you want to pick. If you've lasted for decades, you're doing something right. And for me, like just go back to that picture for a second. At that snapshot moment in time, I'm a kid still trying to learn my craft. And I'm sharing a dressing room with guys like Dick Murdoch, Rick Steamboat, Rick Flair, Harley Race, uh, Jake Roberts, uh, Bob Orton. You know, so many guys that came through there that, you know, if you fell down into a pile of pig shit and came out with a golden horseshoe, you'd call yourself lucky. But if you walked into that dressing room and worked 350 days in a dressing room with guys like that, legends like that, shame on you if you couldn't learn your craft. That means you weren't paying attention or you, you sucked as an athlete, one or the other. And, you know, for me, as a such a huge wrestling fan, such a mark for the business and such a mark for all of those guys, you know, here I am now traveling with them, working with them, watching them. I used to sit back and watch all of them. How did they unpack their bags? How did they pack their bags at the end of the night? Uh, how did they prep for their matches? Uh, what, pro what was the process? Because they all had different processes. And, you know, for me, being in the dressing room like that, this was like a, you know, a, a, a pig and shit. You know, a, a pig and shit in his favorite sty. Uh, because here I was now looking, working with these guys, learning from these guys that I looked up to, that I was a fan of, and in the industry that most people can only ever dream about being a part of. And to sit there and, like I said, go back to that one night, that one snapshot, the night that picture is taken. In that dressing room that night, I can vividly remember, you know, my feelings of being in that dressing room, how fortunate I considered myself, how many guys broke into wrestling around the same time I did that did not entertain the same uh, uh, opportunities that I had and working with these guys, traveling with these guys, learning from these guys. And, you know, with that came a responsibility. You know, if you're, these guys are going to rub elbows with you and take the time to talk to you and answer your questions and give you a pointer here or there, that there is some responsibility to that. You know, that you damn well better down the road be able to demonstrate that you learned something from working with those guys, traveling with those guys, learning from those guys. Uh, you know, if I was going to be a doctor, you know, you know, pick out 10 or 15 or 20 of the biggest names in medicine, right? This is what I got to enjoy. And this is the opportunity that I had handed to me. And I, for one, was not going to look that gift horse in the mouth. Uh, I knew that at any moment it could end. That, you know, Shane Douglas at that moment in time, was not such a talent that you had to keep him around or that he was indispensable. Um, and so I, I fell back on the things I learned from my parents, hard work. If you're willing, and I tell my kids this today, if you're willing to pursue a dream, regardless of what that dream, no matter how unachievable that dream may seem, 
if you're willing to work harder than everybody else, not just think you're going to work harder than everybody else, but genuinely work harder than everybody else. And I think you stand a far better than 50-50 chance of achieving that dream. Uh, I experienced it. You know, for a kid that grew up where I grew up, uh, having no dad, brother, uncle, cousin in the business, uh, getting to meet a guy like Dominic Danucci and train with Dominic and then Bruno. And, you know, and, and like I've said so many times, at all these key points in my career, then meeting Eddie Gilbert and Bill Watts and, you know, working with all the guys that I did in UWF and then the NWA and, 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 and. Uh, shame on me if I hadn't learned my craft and shame on me if I hadn't been able to carry that torch when it was finally handed to me or thrown to me. Um, but I'm, you know, if I had failed, it certainly wouldn't have been for lack of effort. Um, you know, I, 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 I hope in some way I've achieved some of what I should have with having learned from those guys. And I, looking back, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Uh, there's not a thing I would go back and say, yeah, instead of going here at that point, I would have gone there instead. Uh, to me, it was always an adventure. There, every night in the dressing room was an adventure. Every night was a learning experience. Every night was uh, was magic for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed being in the business. We're going to talk about that journey in just a minute, but I got one last dying question, and I'm not sure if this is just in my dream world where this may have happened, but I'd love to hear you uh, maybe clear up a rumor that I'm about to start now. Did Ted Turner take one of your dynamic dude skateboards and kind of uh, practice outside the center stage there, or is that just uh, a myth that I made up in my own mind? <laughs> if so, I hope he did better with it than I did. <laughs> I suck on that damn thing. I, I, when they first put us with that gimmick and took us out and we did those vignettes, we were buying all that. Stuff. that those, were, those were all shoots. There was nothing. You know, We didn't just go out and film that stuff and then take all the stuff back to the store. They... Those were all genuine uh, 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 purchases, and and I I went out and really did try to learn how to that skateboard at the uh, Ramada Inn in College Park, uh, Georgia, right outside of the uh, Atlanta airport, and fell on my ass every time I tried. I just didn't like it. It wasn't my my thing, you know. I, I and you know it wasn't until we went to San Francisco and, you know, we're doing the great American bash tour and we, we slide into San Francisco and we had, I remember kids coming through and it was like, they were talking carny to us. You know, it wasn't carny. It was their, it was their own language, you know, that, (laughs) and it was completely Greek to both me and Johnny, you know, we had no idea. And those kids in that moment knew that that was a gimmick. That, that we weren't skateboarders, that we didn't know the first damn thing about it. Because there's a, not just a, a gimmick or a fad, it was a culture. There was a culture of skateboarding in, in those, especially those bigger uh, cities on the West Coast. Uh, you know, and so to answer your question, I don't believe that Ted Turner was out on the skateboard. Uh, the rumor I heard was that he beamed in like via Star Trek. Like, he beamed in and beamed out, uh, <laughs> which you'd have to ask somebody else who's got more inside lane than I have with Ted Turner, because that, that was the rumor that I heard. 
you know, he was famous for colorizing classic films. So I wonder, did he add the uh, the neon to the dynamic dudes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the dynamic dudes, just a real quick sidebar here. Um, we launched, Donnie and I were on the uh, uh, Hostel City Showdown pay-per-view in Nashville. And we wrestled the Samoa SWAT team as Johnny and Shane. It was either the next generation or the new generation. And I've never been able to find out exactly which one it was, but it was one of those two. And the dynamic dude's name was a creation of Pizza Hut executive Jim Hurd. Um, he had commissioned and spent, we had heard at the time, $60,000 to find out like what were the big words and phrases in California, because he believed that whatever was big in California worked its way eastward and would eventually be big there. And the top two words on that on that uh, uh, study were dynamic and dude. And so in his Pizza Hut brilliance, he came up with the dynamic dudes. So $60,000 is where that name came from. And uh, I would dare say it was probably not the best, uh, most creative moment. Uh, it was I, when Johnny and I first got told that Eddie Gilbert told us the day, the, the morning after Austin City Showdown, as we were getting in the hotel van to go to the airport. And, you know, Eddie had a real wry sense of humor, you know, sort of dry. And when he first said it, it, it just sounded so stupid because we had just debuted last night as Johnny and Shane, the next generation or new generation. And now he's telling us we have a new name. And, it, and especially dynamic dudes, right? I mean, it sounds damn corny. It sounds like a rip. And when he turned around and gave me that straight deadpan look, I knew he was serious. And my heart sunk. And I went to Ric Flair that night. We were in Bristol, Tennessee. Ric Flair was the head of the booking committee. And I went to Rick and I pleaded the case. I said, Rick, this, this name sucks. Like, you, know, you got to do something about this. And he gave me the old nothing I can do, you know, it's out of my hands routine. And, uh, you know, that I, 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 I'll stick up for Ted Turner and say that Ted Turner had nothing to do with the dynamic dude's look, the dynamic dude's name, the dynamic dude's gimmick. He's completely off the hook. That's all Jim Hurd. <laughs> maybe it was the Jane Fonda hotline uh, move to Jim Hurd. Maybe that was it. Maybe Jane Fonda and her exercises were behind it. But, that picture, yeah. that was a great find by uh, by JP. Iconic time, and uh, really cool to get to talk about that. But we're going to take the time machine back a little bit. Now, I, I don't, I'm not going to say this is like chapter one, but this is the beginning of where we're going to pick up after the stories we've heard about you training with Dominic and meeting Mick Foley and, and, and him being outside in the car and you guys getting to know each other and being late for the shows and rest, all the great stories you've told us so far. We're going to pick it up with, you are now leaving, Dominic. You are now finally, you're going to be out on the open road. I don't know, were you starting off by yourself? Tell us what happened immediately after you were now deemed ready to be a professional wrestler. So after Dominic had had uh, a working relationship with Bill Watts, and brought uh, you know pretty good chunk of uh, Bill Watts' talent to the Tri-State area, what we call the Tri-State area, Pittsburgh, Ohio, West Virginia, and ran through there. Eddie Gilbert, who, unbeknownst to me, was the sort of acting booker, and you know Bill Watts was still listed as the booker in UWF, 
but Eddie, and Eddie was his assistant, but Bill was focusing on, at that time, taking UWF National to compete with Vince and WWF, and so Eddie was left with the sort of day-to-day booking chores. And he, Nick and I used to work on all Dominic shows. We were always the opening match. Dominic would put he and I on as the curtain jerk. And uh, in Clarksburg, West Virginia, Eddie Gilbert and Terry Taylor pulled me and Mick back outside of the Nathan Goss Arena and asked if we'd ever thought of going on the road. And neither of us ever had. Uh, and they told us they wanted to bring us on the road. And so we, uh, in my head at that moment, you know, in, the, in the small world that I knew of wrestling at that time, Mick and I were going to go on the road together. And I, uh, I got to go over with Eddie a few weeks later. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I accepted and expected that Mick was going to be going as well. And, and Eddie told me that day that it wouldn't be that way, that uh, Mick was going to be coming in a few weeks behind me. And uh, he gave me my start date. I can't remember exactly what the date was. I, I, it was warm out, though. It was hot. So it must have been summertime in, uh, I believe, 1986. And I uh, packed up my car and uh, drove from Pittsburgh to Dallas, which is where the UWF uh, office was then. And fully expecting Mick to be like two or three weeks behind me, which is what Eddie had told me at the time. And when I pulled in, I get get you know get in. The office was between Dallas and Fort Worth, and beautiful high-rise uh, office building had like a, it looked sort of like the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And when I pulled into the underground parking, and I was going to the elevator, I ran into Sting and his wife Sue. And we wrote, you know, I you know, told him who I was, and you know, I followed him up to the office. And Eddie came out and met me, and you know, gave me the idea, you know, wanted me to come by his house for the next day or two. Uh, and because I had met Sting and Sue there, uh, they had. I was looking for some place to stay, and they had uh, a room in their home. They were running out, so. That was where I ended up staying and, and living for the, I think the first six or seven months that I was there, and uh, and uh, the, a day or two later, whatever it was, went to Eddie's house, which is where we came up with the name Shane Douglas. Uh, I was still Troy Martin at the time, and uh, that's that's where it all transpired. You know, it was uh, so about four days. I, I remember driving down. I, I didn't want to like have to rush and drive straight through, so I just sort of sauntered down to Dallas. I took four days driving down, and you know I would drive as long as I wanted to drive, and then pull over and get a hotel room for the night. And uh, you know, for me, it, it was like embarking on an adventure, like an odyssey. You know, this was it, it was exciting, and at that moment, at that point in time. This was not something I ever thought of or endeavored to do with my life. I, I, I never planned on being a professional wrestler. Um, you know, for me, this was something I was going to do, you know, at that point, you know, for a year or two, maybe, uh, and then, you know, fall back on my education and, and use that. 
And, uh, you know, that never, of course, never happened except whenever I taught school and, you know, a couple other things that I've done. But, uh, uh, you know, it was exciting. And uh, along the way, and, and, and while I was en route driving to Dallas, Eddie was, you know, we were talking daily. And uh, he gave me the phone number of a guy and he said, I'm going to put you guys with this tag team. Uh, and the, the other guy was Davey Haskins. And uh, who, who later became Davey Rich. And Davey and I had spoken several times on the phone uh, while I was in route. And then the following week, once I got there, the following Monday, I was on the road from that point forward. <clears throat> and that's where I met up with Davey Haskins and uh, Carl Fergie and Ron Simmons. And we ended up, you know, being the road, road warriors together. Now, when you're going basically from the training school to a, a big promotion like the UWF and different things like that, not only in your case, in a lot of other cases, how much of a role does Dominic or, or the trainer have in talking to that promoter? Do they say, do they request something? Like, like how do you get basically, maybe they see you, maybe they don't see you, but how do you kind of, you know, basically move up and get a promotion, if you will, um, from your promote, not from your trainer, so to speak, but from, let's just say, from your trainer to a big promotion like UWF. Is that a lot of them knowing you, scouting you, or is that a lot of them trusting in Dominic Danucci? I think both. Uh, I think, just personally speaking, I believe that, you know, I got my foot in the door and met you know, later, uh, because they had seen us working together on Dominic shows. Um, they could see that both of us had the heart and the drive, uh, and the work ethic. Uh, and I'm sure having been trained by Dominic, you know, and keep in mind, Bill Watts, even though he wasn't on the road at that time, I'm sure he's listening to Eddie saying, Hey, we found a couple guys. Uh, I don't, I'm just guessing on this. I, I've never, Eddie's never told me this before he passed away or, but I'm just, you know, putting piece and two and two together that, uh, Bill had known Dominic, knew what a professional Dominic was, uh, knew how proficient Dominic was. And, you know, so if, if Eddie Gilbert's telling him, Hey, we found two guys here on Dominic shows, uh, that, you know, I'm sure that carried some weight than if we had been trained by Joe Blow. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think in each case, it's, it's you know, probably different. Uh, again, I'm just guessing. But, you know, if, if like in that case, and, and say all, all things being equal, if Eddie Gilbert hadn't been there, if Eddie Gilbert hadn't seen Mick and I working, um, you know, and then if Bill Watts had called Dominic and said, hey, do you have, I'm looking for some young kids. Do you have anybody that's ready? That Dominic would have, Mick and I probably would have been the two that Dominic had said, hey, are, you know, probably ready to go on the road. Um, but, I, you know, when you're at that stage of your career, I don't think there's ever a point where it's just like, okay, today you graduated. You're ready to go on the road. You know, going on the road is like being thrown into the seat of the fire. You know, it, it's... It, you think you know what you know, and then you get on the road and you realize you don't know shit. 
as you know, you're going working thirty minute matches in front of a live audience, and you barely know how to lace your boots. Um, you know, so uh, it would have been one or the other, or an amalgamation of the two. You know, either the trainer, in this case Dominic, saying, if Bill had called and asked, I got these guys that are ready. Uh, in, in our case, it was that Eddie was on the road, and I'm sure Bill had faith in Eddie that he would listen when he said something, uh, that Eddie had seen Mick and I. And unfortunately for Mick, uh, when I went in there, right after that, when Bill Watts got into financial trouble, uh, he was trying to go too big, too fast, and competing with Vince at that time was years entrenched as the number one company and was spending a, you know, a boatload of money, millions of dollars, to try to take uh, the UWF national. And when he got into that financial trouble, there was an immediate hiring freeze right behind within like a week or two of me getting in there. There was a hiring freeze put on. And that then forced Mick have to go another route. Uh, Mick ended up going to Nashville, uh, I'm sorry, to Memphis, uh, and, you know, working in through that area. And, you know, had a, you know, not that mine was an easy path, but I think Mick had a a little bit tougher path because the, the pays through Memphis at that time were really, really bad. You know, Memphis was now on its dying days, and the houses were down. Uh, so where I got my foot in the door, we were working, if not full buildings, we were working pretty, you know, 60, 70% full buildings. And, you know, Mick was going into Memphis and through Memphis where, you know, at that time was probably doing 20%, 25% in the buildings and working much smaller towns. So, you know, it was probably a little bit easier path for me than it was for Mick initially. Is it a lot of, not just change, but a little bit of a shell shock, the fact that you're moving, like you said, you got to move in with Sting and his wife at the time, and you're kind of just boarding up with them in their side room, and, and you know, you're doing so much more traveling, and obviously with UWF and the Mid-South, that territory was so long range, and, and, you know, you could probably be in the car for, you know, a day traveling driving from one town, town to another, which that's just complete yeah. shell shock for you. It, it was. Uh, I remember the my first four days on the road, not, I mean, after, I mean, four days on the road as a wrestler. Uh, I left Dallas, Texas, and drove from Sting's house, where I lived, to Thibodeau, Louisiana, and met Davey Haskins and Carl Fergie there in Thibodeau. Uh, that first night, we drove from Thibodeau to Tulsa, I believe. It was Tulsa or Oklahoma City, either or. And then the very next night, right back down to New Orleans, which was like 60 miles down the road from Thibodeau. And then the fourth night uh, from New Orleans back to Tulsa or Oklahoma City, whichever was the alternate. And in four days, all we did was wrestled and drove wrestled and drove, wrestled and drove, drove. And I thought, like, if this is what wrestling is, this ain't what I thought. You know, and I, you know, really wasn't sure if I wanted to continue doing it, but we had so much, you know, I, I, again, you know, just to take a little side note here, you know, for me being on the road, like, 
Davey and I got uh, got along immediately. Davey's a great guy and very easy to travel with. Uh, just you know, just a just a good guy, good dude. And Carl Fergie is a hilarious son of a bitch. I mean, you, you, you could be being starved, and if you're traveling with Fergie, you're having a good time because he's so damn funny. You know, so for me, and then and then Ron Simmons, you know, I don't need to say anything about Ron. You know, ever, who doesn't love Ron, right? And so, you know, the traveling part, even though it was voluminous, it was, you're on the road. You're a wrestler. You know, this is what you wanted to do. And, you know, never thinking you could ever possibly do it. And now here you're getting to do it. So, yeah, it was damn hard. Uh, the, the travel was incredibly tough. There were times in, in UWF we, put, we put in 10,000 miles a week. Um you, know, you basically lived in the car and wrestled. That was what you did. And, uh, you know, it was very, very tough. But you're a kid, you're a baby. You know, I was 21, 22 years old, uh, you know, and, and I'm on the road as a professional wrestler working in front of live audiences with guys like Dick Murdoch, Pez Watley, Dick Slater, uh, Eddie Gilbert, Terry Taylor on a night-to-night basis. You know, I, I mean, at that point, again, at that moment, I'm not thinking this is going to be my career for 30 years. I'm thinking I'm going to do this for a year, maybe two. And for me, this was just like, I'm getting to live a dream. You know, like, this is fucking cool as hell. And in getting to do that, you don't stop and think like, hey, this is tough. The, the driving's a little bit too tough because it wasn't like you were driving, everybody else was flying like what later happened in, in, in the NWA, um, you know, everybody, the Dick Murdoch's and Eddie Gilbert's and Buddy Roberts's and all the guys, Pez Wally's, all of those guys were driving the same roads you were. And these guys were stars that you looked up to that you had watched on TV. So if it's good enough for them, it certainly must be good enough for me. Uh, and, in the process, I'm getting to work with these guys, learn from these guys, uh, travel with these guys. Uh, like I said earlier, this was pure magic to me. And, and at that moment in time, I'm thinking this, this is a limited chapter. This is something I'm going to do for a brief period of my, of my life and move on. Not that I thought that I wanted to move on or whatever. I just figured like this is something you would do for a while and then that chapter would close and... You know, you'd move on to the next thing. Uh, the fact that that door didn't close on me, I think, is a direct result that I had trained with Dominic and learned from Bruno and then was on the road learning and working with these guys, traveling with these guys, listening to these guys, uh, and now time to put up and prove that you learned something from them. Uh, the, the, the business, is there's a lot of shit that goes along with the business. And, you know, we, we, you know, every fan has heard those negative stories and they're all true. Uh, there's a lot of shit side to our business, but when you're on the road with guys that you have a great time with and on a night to night basis, you know, you're walking in the building and looking at the, uh, at the, the, the sheet, you know, the, the card and you're booked tonight with another star you, you're a fan of. And another star tomorrow, and another star the night after that. Uh, 
you know, this was like being on a magic carpet ride. Uh, this was really, really cool stuff to me. And uh, I don't think it's just coincidence that, you know, all these years later that I'm still applying things that I had learned working with those guys. Um, you know, a, a huge thank you to all of them for taking the time to, to teach a stunt-nosed kid like me uh, that, you know, I'm sure all of them saw in me, you know, I'm sure they probably saw a young pain in the ass, but I'm sure they also saw a kid that was eager to learn and a kid that had some basic skill set. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have taken the time to, to, to do that. You know, it's, it just wasn't, it wasn't like this was something that they did every night that they worked no matter who they worked with. Uh, you would see very different matches. You know, if, if, if like, say, a Pez Watley, if he liked you, he'd work hard with you. And, you know, I remember he, that's who taught me how to throw a, a punch in the business. He came back after, you know, a week or two working with him on the road, and he said, God damn, kids are killing me out there. What are you talking about? He said, and he explained to me, my punches sucked. I was either nailing them or missing them. And so he took me into the shower and he took, uh, literally pulled the, the uh, card off the dressing room wall and pulled the tape off his wrist and took me into the shower and taped that piece of paper to the wall. And he said, punch the paper. Punch that. And I thought he was kidding me. And, you know, when I really finally reeled back, reared back and he threw a punch and snapped that paper and never hurt his hand. It was like a magic trick. Like, how do you do that? And every night he would make me do that in the shower. I'd, he'd take that paper off the wall, the card, and take it in there and tape it on the shower wall and, you know, make me do that. And, you know, every night I would do it. And, you know, for the first week or two or three, I'm cracking my knuckles and bruising them and bleed, making them bleed. And, uh, I finally, you know, after however long it was, got the feel of what he was trying to teach me. Those, those kind of instances, how to throw a punch, how to set up a spot, uh, how to take a rest hold and keep it interesting to the audience, uh, how to portray something to the audience, how to sell. Uh, these were all things, you know, you're not born with these things. Uh, at Dominic School, uh, we, we were taught how to do the moves. So, you know, Mick and I and all the rest of Dominic students knew how to do a suplex. We knew how to do a body slam, a hip toss, a beal. Uh, we knew how to chain wrestle because Dominic made us chain wrestle our asses off. Um, you know, those types of basic things. Anybody that's ever graduated from a wrestling school should know those things, how to do those moves. Now, what makes a Ric Flair a Ric Flair? It's not, he knows, it's not just that he knows how to do the moves. He knows when to do the moves. He knows how to tell the story. Uh, I was just talking to Kevin Sullivan the other day on the phone, and I, I, you know, reminding him, you know, the first, you know, five, six, seven years I'm in the business, the old timers keep on saying, ah, kids, you got to learn to tell a story. You got to learn to tell a story. And it's like the Holy Grail. I mean, what the fuck do you mean, learn to tell a story? I'm not wrestling my ass off. What are you talking about? Tell a story. And, you know, suddenly the light bulb goes on after, you know, several years of being on the road. 
uh, Steve Austin and I, you know, before I did his podcast last year, you know, talked and we both agreed that it took us both about six, seven years before we finally caught on and realized what, what it was they were trying to teach us. And, uh, you know, so that came, for me, that was a culmination of working those 340, 350 plus days a year with the Pez Wattleys and the Dick Murdochs and the Buddy Robertses and the Eddie Gilberts and the Dick Slaters and the, and the, and the, and, you know, there was, it was a never-ending road. Uh, but every night was a chance to learn something new, a chance to learn and get better at your craft. And, you know, for me, looking back on it, like, like I said earlier, there, there wasn't a thing I would change about what I, the way I had come through because at every stage of my career, I had the best of opportunities, you know, and, and uh, you know, hopefully I've lived up to that. And, and what all those guys that I've mentioned and promoters and bookers and, you know, production personnel and everything else, hopefully I lived up to that. Obviously, the key figure in Mid-South UWF was Bill Watts. And like you said, you're building yourself up. You're getting to that level. What was it like meeting him as he brings you aboard the team? Very tough. Uh, Bill, you know, Bill's known in the business as a rough-nosed guy. Um, he wasn't an easy boss to work for. Um, at the time, I hated it. You know, Bill was uh, a bit of a bully. Um, you know, his way of communication was usually yelling. You know, Bill was always tense and on edge. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do that he's, you know, spending a shitload of his own money to try to take UWF National. But my first night uh, in, in Thibodeau, uh, working with Eddie Gilbert, when I won the TV title, um, I come to the curtain and I'm floating, right? I mean, my first night in, I, you know, first TV, uh, I won a title. Um, you know, not that I thought that meant anything, you know, at that moment. But I come through, Eddie had called everything in that match. You know, I, I was, first thing Dominic Danucci taught us was keep your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. And I came through the curtain just floating. It was my first night. I mean, how fucking cool is this? And uh, not because I want to type, because I'm wrestling in a territory. I'm wrestling in a company doing a TV taping. And I come to the curtain, again, not having opened my mouth, did everything Eddie Gilbert told me to do. And uh, I come to the curtain, and when it came to the first curtain, the entrance curtain, about 15, 20 feet back, there was another curtain, like a back partition. And to the right of that, my right, was the dressing room door. And I come to that curtain, I'm taking my tape off, and I look up, and Bill Watts is standing there to the left of the door against that second partition curtain. And, you know, Bill's a, not a small guy, you know, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, uh, at that time, I'm guessing about 3, 320". You know, a big boy and, you know, carries himself like a big old tough cowboy. And uh, Andy's the boss, right? It's his company. And he's standing with his hands on his hips. And as I approach him to go into the dressing room, he says to me, what the fuck was that? 
and you know, you know I stopped dead in my tracks and in my head. You know, I'm, I'm like a trying to computer go through, you know, and compute like what's what's my response? And I quickly settled on it's my first night. He's he's fucking with me. He's ribbing me. You know, because certainly he would know that Eddie called that match, and you know, this is this is my thinking at the time, my, my, the, the extent of my wisdom at the time in the wrestling business. And I quickly settled in my head that he's ribbing me because it's my first night. And I cracked a grin. I was going to say nice rib. And as soon as I cracked that grin, that big bastard came at me and slammed me into the wall. And his nose is about two inches from my nose. And he's yelling and spitting in my face, saying, don't you ever turn your fucking back to the camera, and, you know, screaming. I mean, in an audible tone, but I thought any second he's going to say, get your shit and get the fuck out, you're fired. It was very, very tense. And I certainly didn't like it. But I realized very quickly I had had coaches like that before. Uh, that he wasn't yelling, hey, you suck, you're a piece of shit, motherfucking idiot. Not, it, was, it wasn't that kind of screaming. It was barking instructions at me. And I knew what he was doing. I, I hated it. I didn't like it at all. Uh, but I sure as hell wasn't going to tell the boss and the guy that was about twice my size to fuck off. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I it caught on very quickly. You know, plus, you know, the guys in the dressing room tell you, ah, it's just Bill's way. He doesn't mean anything by it. You know, it's, he's just trying to teach you that kind of stuff. And, you know, you just caught on, you catch on with it pretty quickly. But I, I also caught on very quickly with Bill. The one thing he didn't do is not take his demand or his advice. If he said, don't turn your fucking back to the camera, if you turn your back to that fucking camera again, you're going to catch even more hell the next time. And, you know, Bill was tough. But, you know, as much as I hated it at the time, I look back at it now and I'm appreciative of it because, you know, if I had had somebody going, hey, I was a great match kid, you know, why, why would there have been any reason for me to try to learn or work harder? Uh, again, I, I personally, I wouldn't have Bill style if I was running a company. Um, but, you know, again, I look back how many times in this episode, in this, in this podcast episodes, or in any interview you've ever heard me do, have you heard me say, I learned this from Bill Watts, or Bill Watts taught me. Um, you know, I, again, just one of those things that, like I said, I wouldn't have changed, even though I didn't like it at the time. You know, it's, I certainly learned from Bill Watts. Is Dominic kind of keeping track of you? Is he following up with you? Are you following up with him about how are you doing in UWF or, you know, how are you doing on the road? Or is it one of those things that he sends you off and you're off and you're gone? Well, for years, decades, actually, I thought that it was that, that, Bill, that Dominic had just sent us off and, you know, helped us get started. And that was it. And uh, he was going training somebody else. Uh, lately, you know, like in the last five, six, seven, eight years, you know, Dominic and I have, you know, not that we ever fell out or, you know, didn't stay in contact. But over the last several years, especially, Dominic and I have, you know, reconnected. You know, I, I see Dominic multiple times a week. I was out at his house today. Um, 
Turned 87 years old yesterday, by the way. Phenomenal oh, thing. happy um, birthday. Yeah, Dominic's 87 now, and look, still, still kicking and getting along great. But uh, uh, So I was out there today, but I, to answer your question, I think what he did, you know, I know what he did because we have spoken about it several times. He did keep very close tabs. Uh, several times he had called uh, Bill, unbeknownst to me, uh, called Bill and said, hey, you know, tell the kid this. Uh, you know, just little, little things like that. But at the time, I was completely unaware of. Had no idea. He never told me. Bill never told me. Nobody ever told me those things. Uh, it was just things that, you know, I've learned since. And, uh, you know, Dominic, the one thing about Dominic is he's a genuine guy. And for me, for Mick, for Cody Michaels, for Brian Hildebrand, uh, for all of us that went through his school, even the ones that never really hit it big, uh, he he has an affinity for. Um, Dominic didn't just run a school where he took people's money. Uh, he, like I told you before, he trained me for free um, because he knew I, I didn't have the money at the time. But for if he took your money, uh, he wasn't just taking your money and saying, okay, you've learned all you're going to learn to get out the door. He took a liking to everybody he trained uh, and kept an eye out for them as best he could. Um, Keeping in mind that Dominic was on the road uh, for quite a while after he trained us and after he had a school. And then after that was was working for the uh, New York Times. Um, After he had, I I guess you'd say semi-retired because he wrestled, I think until into his late sixties or early seventies, he wrestled for quite a while. And, uh, but he, he did stay in close contact with all of us. And like I said, a minute ago, Dominic and I never grew apart. There was never a time that I wasn't, you know, checking in with Dominic or talking with him or seeing him, you know, say, several times. I don't think in the last, since I met Dominic in 1978, I don't think there's been, more than several months that I haven't seen him or talked to him. Uh, you know, it's considering how often we were on the road, uh, it's saying something, you know, Dominic is, he's more than just my trainer. I, I, I love the guy like a second dad. You know, he's, he's just a genuinely tremendous human being. And, you know, you guys have met him and, and, and it, it, what you saw and talking with him, that's Dominic. Yeah, he's a completely down to earth guy. And, he cares about people, and he loves the business. He, he loves being around the business. He loves talking to the fans. He loves meeting people like you guys that have a love of the business. Uh, Dominic is all about professional wrestling, and you know, I'm, uh, you know, for me, I've been really fortunate that I learned that I met him when I did, and got the chance to learn from him when I did. Oh yeah, very blessed to uh, have met Dominic through you, and and be around him, and, and get to talk to him a little bit. Just about what's going on. I mean, not even having to do with wrestling, just to talk to him in general is a lot of fun. And even to see him interacting with my daughter when we we came out to that one show in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's just fun. You know, he's just he he is. He's just a great, great guy. Uh, but I I don't know. Did I hear you correctly? Did you say he worked for the New York Times? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. After 
and I, I can't remember the years. I'm going to say probably around late 80s, early 90s, uh, for over 20 years. He, he you know, at, After his wrestling career, and, and I think this is more condemnation of our industry, uh, you know, Dominic had put in 40 years on the road and you know, never made anywhere near the kind of money the guys they're making. We made a good living and, you know, saved pretty much most of what he, whatever he could save. Dominic was by no means uh, an ostentatious spender. You know, that, that whole generation, most of those guys were notoriously uh, cautious with their money. And uh, after he retired and didn't have retirement, um, when Junior bought the company from his dad, Senior, all of those guys, uh, Dominic, uh, Cicluna, you know, that whole generation of guys, they were all told by Senior that if they stayed loyal to the company, they'd have a job for life. And while they were in their late 40s and early 50s, most of them, is when Junior bought it. And summarily told them all, your deal was with my dad. He don't own the company anymore. You know, so you can imagine how these guys that thought they had a guaranteed job, no retirement, um, after put in, putting in decades on the road, you know, suddenly now they've got to figure out how they're going to pay their bills, how they're going to keep a roof over their families' heads, uh, feed their families, take care of their families. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Davey O'Hannon who was instrumental in getting, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it was Cicluna, Danucci, and several other guys that had gotten hired up there. And they worked in distribution and different areas in the company. Uh, And in Dominic's case, Dominic uh, would go on the road like he did when he was on the road wrestling. He would uh, go to New York and he had an apartment in New Jersey and stayed there Monday through Friday. And after he delivered the Friday paper and got it out, you know, distributed out to all the vendors, uh, would drive back to Pittsburgh and spend a day and a half with Janine and then turn right back around and drive back in time to deliver the the Monday uh, edition. And, you know, he, he, he's never complained. He's, he considers himself to this day to have been fortunate to have had that opportunity. Uh, but I would say shame on our industry that, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, Ivan Koloff being uh, accused of begging for welfare uh, when, with the letter that we had talked about before. And, you know, somebody like Dominic, the same thing. You can see why some, a lot of people in the business don't have the the highest uh, respect for a certain Irishman, <laughs> and have the utmost respect for his father, which is the uh, ironic thing. It's the uh, must have been a lot of those guys must have uh, made him feel like he was two inches tall and he couldn't hang with them. And I'm not saying they were big time in him. That he he probably just felt like he never belonged, and that's why he xed all those guys out and wanted to bring his own team in. Uh, because he probably was feeling slighted. And you know that all it takes is to look at them the wrong way, and that's it. You're done. Yeah. Who knows? 
Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Let me paraphrase this. You know, make sure I say it the right way. Uh, because I've spent my career trying to figure this guy out. Like, when I can't figure something out, it bugs me, and I can't just ignore it and just move on and go to the next thing. Uh, there are so many things about Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, that you've got to respect, right? I mean, the guy has dominated in an industry, monopolized it in many ways. Um, you know, changed the industry completely. Uh, and yet there's other things that make you scratch your head. You know, like the, the, the comment that he made to Ivan Koloff about, you know, I don't want a fucking welfare business. Um, that to me is, like, I, I couldn't imagine saying that to somebody of Ivan I, I couldn't imagine saying it to anybody, let alone somebody of Ivan's stature. Um, and, you know, so, boy, if you could crawl inside that head and see, like, what makes up Vince McMahon, <laughs> that must be a damn menagerie. You know, it really must be because, uh, you know, and who knows what goes on. I don't pretend to know. Uh, but, you know, just that you could do that to a whole generation of guys that were loyal to your father, I think is, is odd to begin with. It's a strange oddity that, you know, why suddenly despite all these guys at this stage of their careers, right, where, you know, they're they're obviously well past their prime and, you know, still still gonna need to make a living. And you know, then you hear the backstories of stuff about his brother Roderick and and who knows what's truth and what's fiction, but all I can say is that and, you know, the asset and the, uh, you know, the debit and the credit sheet, you know, the, the uh, you know, if you're going to do a quick accounting, it, from what I've seen, there, there's a lot more on the deficit side than there is on the asset side with Vince. And, uh, you know, you can't argue with the success, but you can certainly find fault with the way he treated these guys. And, you know, if I hadn't, Seen the letter. If I hadn't held the letter in my hands and read the letter from Vince to to Ivan, um, I, I would probably take it with a grain of salt. But because I held that letter in my hands and read it at his behest, you know, and, and know what he's done to Dominic and Cicluna and so many of those other guys, uh, I find it really hard to find an excuse for that. You know, like you. You know, saying, hey, business, that, 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 that's a cheap cop-out. You know, if, if you come to work for me or my dad or both of us for decades and make us money for decades, am I not responsible to you in any way? Do I not have some greater responsibility? Yeah, I've paid your paycheck and I get all that. But is there not some greater responsibility that now that you're at retirement age, that I just say, okay, guys, fuck off. CLV. Um, I find that very, very strange. You know, and uh, like I said, having held that letter and read that letter to Ivan, uh, just really, not that I had much respect to begin with, but that just took it to a new low for me. 
Um, but it is what it is. You know, I, anybody that knows them, anybody that's been around this business and, and, and has heard these stories ad nauseum over the decades about Vince, uh, won't find any of this surprising or shocking, but it just still, there's something that makes every one of us tick, right? And there's some reason that, you know, if you're afraid of dogs, for it's probably because you got bit when you were a kid or afraid you were going to get bit or something. There's something that makes him afraid of dogs. What makes Vince McMahon treat these guys with such disdain and such disrespect is astounding to me. At Bruno San Martino's funeral, he sat literally 18 inches behind Dominic, was breathing down his neck the entire service. Never once acknowledged Dominic, never said hello to Dominic, never shook hands with Dominic. What the hell? <laughs> it just seems to me, you know, you could hate somebody, and but you're at another man's funeral, I would think there'd be a mutual respect, but I guess I would be wrong. Crazy. That's yeah. That's still chilling to uh, to have heard that, and you know, and to see Dominic afterwards, and and even hear him on our airwaves talk about what Bruno meant to him. That's uh, that was pretty low yeah. that uh, he was ignored in that way. But we'll uh, we'll we'll shelve that. We've uh, we've talked about that at great length. If you want to go back in our archives and listen to uh, just a lot of the post Bruno talk. I mean, there's a lot of episodes where we talk Bruno, but uh, if you really want to hear from the heart. What Bruno and Dominic's relationship was like, go back and listen to the episode right after Bruno passed away that we had Dominic on the airwaves and uh, just absolutely amazing story of a, of a great timeless friendship that spanned many, many years uh, wrestling, uh, traveling, and uh, post-wrestling and, and being good buddies. And uh, it's a great story. To, uh, to say the least. But Shane, we're going to wrap it up for episode number 79. I hope you like this little series that we're going to dive into little by little. Obviously, we left you as the UWF tenure of Shane Douglas's career was just starting. So we will have a lot to do in the next couple of weeks with that story. And we lost Shane. Hold on. Let me add him back. I don't know what happened there. It just dropped yeah, off. it just dropped off. But all right, so I just did a whole <laughs> a whole wrap. So I'll just get to the second part of it. So just uh, we'll, we'll keep rolling like nothing ever happened. So Shane, as we wrap it up here and, and we move forward, UWF is is starting to uh, to come on the horizon. But you, my friend, are getting back into the swing of things. And this coming weekend, the franchise hits the road and dons the boots one more time. So what's going on in your world this weekend, Shane? And where are you going to be appearing? It'll be at the uh, Sayreville uh, Emergency Squad uh, in Parlin, New Jersey, this Saturday. Uh, looking forward to it. It's, like I said, it's been about six weeks I've been off. Had a great respite with my kids and spent the holidays and the new year. Uh, so looking forward to getting back out there this weekend. And, and uh, I will be at the uh, Sayreville Emergency Squad at uh, 776 Washington Road in Parlin, New Jersey, this Saturday night at 730. So... If you're in the area, come by and say hello. It can be a great card of wrestling. A lot of big names and a lot of great matches I lined up. Uh, so make sure you get out this uh, Saturday, uh, part of New Jersey. It's going to be great. The franchise back in New Jersey. Always a great uh, stop for the franchise. And hey, if you want to reach out to us, please do so on uh, the social medias if you can. 
You can hit us up on Twitter at the franchise SD, at Two Man Power Trip, at Wrestling Pal, and at the Three Thread Pod. There, you can send us uh, pictures of your franchise action figure collection, like Kurt Hawkins was sharing the other day, sharing his Shane Douglas action figure. Or you can go ahead and uh, send us questions, anything you want, feedback, whatever you're feeling. Please send it our way. And, of course, head over to TMPTFWrestling.com. There you'll find the Triple Threat podcast page with YouTube links, downloads for the show, as well as all the information about TMPTCon 3 in Richmond, Virginia, this coming May 18th. A lot to come. So far announced the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette and the Rock and Roll Express. And a nice big announcement coming in the next uh, few weeks here. So please stay tuned to that. And uh, Shane, that's enough out of me. Why don't we hand it over to you? Take us out of this week. Get us out to a big episode number 80 next week. And uh, who knows what the world's going to bring us in the next seven days. 79 episodes under the belt. Big 8-0. And seven more weeks will be almost as old as Dominic Danucci. But make sure you tune in next week or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.